Want to stand with Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Get her iconic Descent collar in the form of a pin, necklace, or earrings. Descent Pins donates 50% of profits to causes you love, like the Bronx Freedom Fund and Planned Parenthood. Take 20% off today with code HARPERS at DescentPins.com. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. As anyone who works in a creative field can tell you, the cream doesn't always rise to the top. And, to egregiously mix my metaphors for just a second, that isn't sour grapes. Any measure of recognition arises not just from individual artworks, but from connections to fellow artists, art dealers, art collectors, critics, and, eventually, historians. A contemporary of Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg, Cy Twombly made work that, for most of his career, went underappreciated and ignored by the main movers of the New York City art scene. Twombly employed scribbles, writing, and opaque references to classical Greek and Roman myths in his work, leaving many to wonder if there was any there there. Twombly's flippant, cryptic, or antagonistic comments about his life and work didn't help matters either. Yet, following a major retrospective at the Whitney in 1979, Twombly's star began to rise, and the show influenced a new generation of artists. Twombly's life and work are the subject of two recent books, Chalk, The Art and Erasure of Cy Twombly by Joshua Rivkin, and Cy Twombly, 50 Days at Ilium, edited by Carlos Basualdo. I spoke with Andrew Martin, who reviewed both in the March issue about Twombly's legacy. I don't want to start off by asking you, who was Cy Twombly? But (laughs) I think we can get to who he was, because in your review of the book about his life, and we can talk about what makes that book unique in a second, but... He's in between these two crucial points in 20th century art, this move away from abstract expressionism and pop art, and then into neo-expressionism of the 80s and like the art, so the art market going crazy and stuff like that. So how would you define his work within sort of those kind of poles? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that he does seem to sort of fall through the gaps a little bit. Um, His style and his era feel very much of the abstract expressionist period, but he's coming in a little bit late, and he's very close with and has a romantic relationship with Robert Rauschenberg, who's sort of considered the bridge figure between abstract expressionism and pop art. And Twombly's actually with him while he's sort of developing this new vocabulary. So you you get a sense that Twombly's also very much thinking about these things. At the same time as people like Jasper Johns, who I just read that great profile of. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, his, his career goes on for such a long time that he sort of lives through the and, and has a direct influence on the, the rise of neo-expressionism in the 80s and people like Basquiat and David Sally and all these kind of people uh, who are combining these different influences. So he feels very contemporary throughout his career until the very end when he starts to look like, I think, a a symbol of a previous era or a bunch of different eras. Hmm. For somebody who isn't super familiar with what abstract expressionism is, except for maybe 
like, oh, Jackson Pollock, the drips. What was he doing with the canvas? Well, how was he conveying movement? You know, sort of strokes and stuff like that. Right. The big idea, some of the big ideas in abstract expressionism are about about this kind of visceral movement and this sort of heroic disbursement of, of paint on the canvas. And you have Joan Mitchell and Helen Frankenthaler and obviously Pollock and de Kooning. And there's sort of a, a violence or a, a, I mean, you know, action painting is the idea behind Pollock. And you see that in Twombly. You see the movement and a violence, um, but it feels different. I mean, it, it feels like there is an element always in his work of depicting things in the real world, which is not generally true of most abstract expressionism or quote-unquote pure abstract expressionism. And I think that's where he gets into trouble with critics at the time and also what makes him interesting now. Um, you know, he, he's, he's saying this is these are paintings of the reign of Commodus when it looks like a bunch of scribbles or squiggles or bloody mess and so you're there's an extra layer of guidance and also an extra layer of interpretation that makes it feel like a combination of classical work and and pure abstraction yeah and i wanted to ask about that use of the past or the use of the primitive um because there you could see you know there's there are sort of three dominant interpretations of his work where it's he's sort of ambivalent and flip towards the past the use of Iliam with an A instead of a U, but then, oh wait, maybe it's serious because there is, it's just a repeated thing, or maybe it's a little bit of both. He's like an irony guy. Yeah, that's, I hate saying yeah all the time, but <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Uh, that That's part of what makes it so interesting because I think when I first started looking at his work, I thought that maybe he was sort of putting the viewer on a little bit, that, mm -hmm. that they were pretentious titles or that they were sort of like trying to make excuses for what is otherwise like a really juvenile and sort of ugly <laughs> uh, style. Uh, and then the more I read and the more I thought about it, the more I found it interesting that he was trying to, I, I think in, in some cases at least, really give voice to these ancient ideas or or to sort of like imagine what it would be like to really live through violence and and to experience it directly and so i think it's an attempt to bring the past forward in, into life and to make it feel contemporary uh in a way that i think is 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 more sophisticated than i originally gave it credit for um I, I think he is pretty serious. Mm. I, I don't think he's... It, it does seem like in interviews and things, he was often wry about his work, and he seems like a funny sort of old Southern guy, especially in his later years. But it's hard to look at the pictures and find them laugh-out-loud funny for the most right. part. <laughs> right. It's a, yeah, it's a weird joke, right, <laughs> especially exactly. to make in like the late 50s. But um, some of the intricacies of certain paintings, particularly how he is not only referencing a classical event that happened in antiquity, but also the translation and how the translation worked and function. And it's like it's there are lots and lots of layers there. But I feel like maybe you have to be a classicist to understand that. I Yeah, I mean, I, I had a lot of fun... Um, sort of playing classicist doing some of it um there's this really wonderful book that i was using um writing Cy twombly and it had this 
essay that I quote a bunch from about the 50 days at mm. Ilium, or maybe it's the 50 days at Ilium catalog that, that I was reviewing from Yale, um, that, that goes into that in, in really, really cool ways. Just and, and Rivkin does a pretty good job in a few places with it, too, showing how Twombly is tweaking quotes. Mm. Like very few, a, a lot of his titles uh, are... Uh, or epigraphs or like f there's fragments of text on the paintings um, but he changes a lot of them from, from what the translation actually is uh, or how they've been translated in the past and usually it's not like he's doing his own free translation but more like he's mashing up mm. pieces of different translations like the famous one is uh, the title of that massive late painting Say Goodbye Catullus to the Shores of Asia Minor is sort of a mashup of two different um quotations and uh that it creates this nostalgic effect that he wants but it's you know originally it's say goodbye catullus to something else and then there's like a line a few lines later it says and you know from here to the shores of asia minor but he sticks them together to create this longing for home and this idea of exile and obviously that fits in well with his own personal narrative and you know he'll use rilke quotes but but change certain words or he'll quote only half of a of a line or get something deliberately wrong uh there there is there is a playfulness but it mm -hmm. is it's so enig enigmatic that it's sometimes hard to tell if the joke is just that he messed it up <laughs> 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 or, or, or <laughs> occasionally you you see that you know rifkin notes that uh there's a lot of references to classical um homosexual relationships or or throughout time and uh, that pops up over and over again, sort of as a, as a hint or a wry sort of acknowledgement, even though he was, you know, uh, very reticent about his sexuality throughout his life. His, his interviews, as you said, he would kind of make a joke out of them, but he would also pull back and be like, well, I hate talking about myself. I was raised not to talk about myself. And so there's always that sense of like, well, is he actually giving a helpful answer or is this just something to kind of screw around with people, which made Joshua Rifkin's book kind of a journey. So can right. we move into that? Yeah. Because it is a fascinating and maybe a little bit like cool, gossipy story. Yeah, I mean, the book is a classic case in some ways of a book becoming a book about not getting to write the book you want to. <laughs> um, he ran into a lot of trouble with uh, the estate, uh, namely Nicola Del Rosco, um, who is the main executor of the estate and was Twombly's assistant and by by most accounts romantic partner um, for, for many, many years throughout his life. And Twombly didn't go on the record all that often. He, mm -hmm. he gave, you know, a few interviews, mostly right around when he had this huge retrospective in 1994, when he was already, you know, quite old. And, and a lot of his, a lot of what we have of his direct autobiographical information comes from these interviews. But mm -hmm. when you look at them on the page, they're, they're pretty elliptical. They're pretty gnomic. There's not... Uh, a huge opening up <laughs> you know, like one one of the quotes from them that gets used a lot is there has to be a history behind the thought right uh, <laughs> you're like okay uh sure uh that that sounds about right but but what is the history behind the thought and what does that actually mean and, and so rivkin a lot of the book is him i think in a quite entertaining and, and interesting way combing through various statements that twombly's made various 
quotes that other people have said about him, things that people have said about things that Twombly said. <laughs> you know, it, it feels like the way that, uh, you know, you recount stories of people who lived hundreds of years ago as opposed right. to someone who died in 2011. <laughs> you shouldn't have to rely so much on, on third-hand accounts, but, but here we are. Yeah. And, and there's weird things, too, where, um, I mean, it seems like what really set off Del Rosso, I, I hate to I'm butcher the pronunciation of Sam Del Rosso, was that Rivkin had interviewed a guy who had driven Twombly around or had been sort of an assistant to him. And the guy told Rivkin that once he had sort of helped him with a painting, mm. um, that he had sort of been there and maybe, I can't remember the details, but had held the brushes or something. And Del Rosio, according to Rivkin, became furious and said, you know, this is gossip, this is slander. And the driver recanted what he had told Rivkin. And and at that point, Rosio said, you're not going to have access to anything. We're going to sue you. And and then the book becomes, you know, kind of a Malcolm X-esque labyrinth of maybe getting sued and, and anxiety about that. And, and of course, it's absolutely relevant who helped with this work. What is What was yeah. the process of making the work? And, and, I, and I do see, of course, from the estate's perspective, why any suggestion that anyone else touched the work could, could be damaging. But it's also... Uh, frustrating <laughs> as yeah. someone who cares about the work, obviously, to to have that those kind of roadblocks. Right. And when he was actually working, again, it seems like this very secretive, but also maybe you can't really put it into words way of working where instead of just going to the studio every day, he would just find the mood or find whatever it would strike him and he would go and he would just work until he was finished. In other accounts, like just of people who knew him is there a better sense of that of working and actually getting the work out either from what Rifkin has you know written or from, or found from or elsewhere yeah there's some interesting stuff um there's one account by Del Rosio actually that's mentioned in the book because he wrote a lot of the sort of in the catalogs of, of Twombly's work, a lot of the stuff is written by Del Rosio, and it's mm -hmm. we're sort of we have his word on he went here, he went there, he did this. Um, and there's one account of him sort of being very drunk and angry, making a painting, and sort of so. And, and so there, you you have like an actual illustration of him in a sort of fugue or a, a rage making his work, which, which sort of tracks with what the painting sometimes look like. Yeah. Uh, there's a really wonderful book of photographs by Sally Mann, I think called Remembered Light, that are photographs of um, Twombly's studio in Lexington, Kentucky towards the end of his life. And they're, they're photographs that were mostly taken, I believe, after Twombly died. And so you really get a sense, you know, and it's a total mess. There's half-finished things on the walls. There's brushes and half-finished sculptures and things everywhere. And you really get a sense that he's, right, get, turning his attention to things in a very haphazard what we imagine as the old school romantic sensibility. But, but there's there's paintings like the Say Goodbye Catullus painting, which is this massive, massive painting he made that he didn't finish until the 90s, but he'd been working on it by his accounts for like 30 years, and it traveled all over the world with him. And so you do get a sense that he's sort of looking for that perfect thing. Of course, then when you see it, you're like, well, <laughs> it doesn't look like it took 20, 30 years, but I don't know. I mean, that feeling that well why did this take so long do you feel like that um maybe is part of the reason why 
New York critics really didn't respond to his work for so long. And he was, you know, in addition to living in Europe, he was better received there, too. Yeah, there's this sense that there was some sort of xenophobic response to his work early on, that that he had, that people thought they they were sort of un-American in their sensibility, though they don't seem particularly (laughs) Italian or French or (laughs) or European in their sensibility either. So you're sort of like, I think people were trying to find reasons to to say we find this distasteful and weird. Uh, We'd rather not (laughs) uh, (laughs) accept this into into the canon. But... I think there's this sense that he's messing around, right? That that it's ugly or that it's inscrutable on purpose or pretentious on purpose. Um, and I think that's the, the real question that his work raises is how sincere he is, I think. And, and that was, um, you know, the title of the piece came from a line towards the end of the, the title of this piece came from a line towards the end where I wrote that, that certain personal things that Rivkin has found make you feel like it's not just projection, not mere projection that you're putting onto the work. Because I think there is, I still have this fear. And I, and I talked to, it was funny when the piece came out, uh, a bunch of my friends wrote, like, oh, that was a, that was a cool piece. Like, I, I hate Twombly <laughs> uh, and I'm not convinced. But, uh, you know, you did a good job of explaining why someone might like his work. Um, and I remain... Uh, I think when whenever something is embraced by a certain kind of intellectual uh, elite and the work itself really raises a lot of questions about what you're looking at, it's inevitable that you're going to have this unease, at least I certainly do, about what it is and whether or not it's what you're seeing is really there. It's not like Picasso where his technique is clearly so brilliant that that any doubts you have about various directions he went are sort of allayed by the fact that you're like well at the end of the day he's a brilliant draftsman or something uh with with Twombly you don't have that much evidence of that what you have is this huge body of work a lot of which is very repetitive and very um some of it looks insane you know really <laughs> yeah <laughs> quite uh like the work of someone with with just sort of this strange compulsion which I which I find interesting narratively, and I think a lot of people also enjoy that aspect of it, that it feels sort of like a strange combination of what used to be called outsider art and and this very, very high art sensibility. I feel like what you just said really leads into this question of reputation and how, mm-hmm. because there are definitely artists, be they, you know, you feel them. I worked for Robert Wilson, and that oh. is an artist who very much is interested in legacy and reputation. And he was working on it since he was in his like 20s. Like he had a very clear vision of like, I want this preserved and this is important and this is a part of my practice. And obviously when you're talking about reputation, it also relates to the market too. Like it, you can't, you can't have one and not have the other anymore. So Let's talk a little bit about repu- how he built that reputation and sort of what took him from being sort of like un-American to being, you know, selling, you know, for millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, I mean, part of it seems like really good marketing. Sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Doesn't he, hurt. <laughs> he was represented by Castelli um, for, for many years when he was the major um, dealer. And then he... 
uh, and he had the the premature of of being part of the Black Mountain School, so he had the Rauschenberg and like sort of by connection, um, Jasper Johns and John Cage and Motherwell and Franz Klein, and so you have this, you know, direct personal lineage. I think does a lot for that, especially then when the market. And again, I'm not. I, I should preface everything by saying, well, this is. I'm sure very clear. Not an expert <laughs> in in uh, you know 20th century art, um, but from what I understand, you know, the market ex- exploded in the 80s, and then having that kind of lineage, this like very blue chip lineage, mm-hmm. was, was hugely important, especially as all these other artists sort of re-embraced this expressionism and, and this other style a- after years of, of slightly more intellectualized and minimalism and, and things like that um things so, you couldn't own or sell <laughs> yeah exactly like cool stuff yeah no. <laughs> uh and then all of a sudden there's this explosion of um you know graffiti art and and all kinds of expressionism and all kinds of um depicting real things again and, and suddenly Twombly seems like the the perfect avatar and the perfect sort of blue chip version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he suddenly, as somebody writes, I think um, Peter Sheldahl um, seems like a blue chip, uh, an old, he seems like an old master <laughs> right. um, among this generation of artists. So I, I think the, the, the winds shifted in his direction at sort of a perfect time. But he also just kept making work, I, I think is a huge part of it. Again, thinking about Jasper Johns and how his legacy and his reputation has continued to be strong i think a huge part of it is that he's he's continued to produce art and it's a lot of it follows in a pattern he doesn't he hasn't made as radical shifts and and twombly has phases but at the end of the day stuff that he started doing in his in the mid 60s doesn't look that different than stuff he was making in the mid 2000s um so i think he also reputation wise did a really good job of building a brand (laughs) which which feels like a in my mind, sort of an ugly word, but uh, you know, I think it, it's important as far as someone's art historical reputation goes. I mean, that's yet another irony that somebody who is so intensely private is actually like the master of this hor- of, of branding and like promo- and like it's like, well, yeah, I guess, I guess. <laughs> right. Well, it's the Kurt Cobain effect, right? Where, where you, <laughs> or or J D. Salinger or something, where whether or not it's entirely intentional and there's this push and pull and and the fact is that sort of reluctance ends up reading as authenticity right and it may well be um but it also is very good marketing oh yeah 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 (laughs) is there a particular reason why aside from the fact like so the manil family being like huge instrumental art collectors in houston commissioning a lot of amazing site-specific works in the city of houston like the rothko chapel they have a whole museum dedicated to Twombly. I know they courted him very, very actively. Um, that they really loved the work, and he, he had been pretty reluctant um, to to have his work there. And and they really, really gave him the hard sell, saying we're going to build this pavilion and, and it's going to be permanent, and we're going to always house it there. And then it seems like he was won over to this idea that you know there would be this. You know, who wouldn't want a space like that? Um, yeah. But but I think even though they were the Manils at that time when the stuff was when they were proposing this, which I think was in the nineties, uh, you know, well, it's still you got to go to Houston. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think like the dream is is to have it in New York. Uh, 
but uh, yeah, it, some, someone convinced him at some point that that was going to be great for his legacy, and, and it has been. Um, and, and and then I, I think this was part of the one of my previous responses, but then Gagosian took over as his, Larry Gagosian took over as his dealer in the, I think, early 80s. For some reason, in fact-checking, we went back and forth on when this actually happened. But mm-hmm. um, And that was huge, and that positioned him right in the middle of the 80s art market, and um, I can't remember whether the Manil thing came about kind of in the midst of that, I think, and suddenly his his stock rose dramatically. Hmm. How do I say this? I mean, it is hard. It is kind of hard to talk about his work because it is so evasive. Like, yeah, and yeah, just nomic. Like you said, <laughs> it is just like, ah, how do you? You just kind of have to see it and kind of experience it. Um, and and I say this even as somebody who's not terribly sold on it. Like I'm, a, I'm a doubter. I'm a totally <laughs> doubter. <laughs> I think you have to be. I think there's no. I I would I would be very suspicious of someone who said I I knew from the start that this was great and yeah. that and i think well one of my one of my favorite painters is philip guston mm, yeah and i think i think this remained in the final version of the piece <laughs> that i make a comparison between them because they both sort of come out of abstract expressionism and then sort of mess with it and react to it and do different things with it and guston went toward almost like a sort of cartoonish sensibility that i really love and twombly uh, also went in the representation direction but but in this very different sort of scrawly way but i think both of them i've found a lot of writers i know are really attracted to both of them because there's this strong narrative element yeah in their work and sort of a narrative journey one takes across their body of work and and you sort of have to make connections between the titles and the history and the stories behind them and they both have these stories of like sort of being exiled from the art world and then being re-embraced later you know there's almost this they feel like Bruno Schultz or Kafka or someone in some ways where there are people who were underappreciated and then sort of it turned out they were prophets and and seers and and found new ways of looking at things um the dream everyone wants to live. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it happened for both of them while they were alive. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, the best, the, the best. <laughs> and they got millions of dollars yeah. out of it. Yeah, I mean, I for me, I feel like the difference with Gustin, I feel like there's this whole kind of fully fleshed out world. And that world is like commenting on our world, obviously, or it's running parallel to our, our world. And with Twombly, I don't feel that as much. And it's not like I need to have that to appreciate something but there's like there is a need to sort of fill in something that maybe I can or I don't want to fill in I think that that feels right um I was really interested to read about the Commodus paintings that a lot of people have read them as sort of commentaries or reactions to the Kennedy assassination Mm. um because they do look like um bloodstains and they they look like violence and so it makes sense that they're depictions of the mad emperor um but that was an interesting window for me into the way to think about Twombly in a um contemporary way because I hadn't thought about him commenting on and 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 I don't think to my knowledge he ever really directly addressed (laughs) that obviously And, and it was noted by Rivkin that he's he did a whole series of paintings that refer to assassinations throughout history um, Hmm. to Caesar and to other emperors who were killed 
he feels like a very I mean he couldn't exist outside of the 20th century obviously but um I think in the way that he seems to embody a kind of chaos that that feels contemporary to me not as directly as as Gustin and his clansmen or or mm. you know the guy smoking and eating french fries in bed which is one of my favorite paintings ever <laughs> yes exactly yes it's great <laughs> i relate very strongly yes i mean, I mean yeah I, I once saw a bunch of twombly sculptures uh some of the, those white sort of very enigmatic sculptures mm. in a gallery of contemporary stuff in um at the chicago institute of art oh yeah and it was hung right around the corner from some really wild um, Japanese art from the 60s that was very much, you know, sort of radical, violent, um, you know, po- holes in the canvas kind of stuff. And, and I, I thought they worked so well in conversation with each other, even though Twombly isn't thought of as a political artist because he didn't ever speak of it that way and wasn't sort of part of that kind of coterie um suddenly you could see that conversation happening in the ways that some of those ideas and feelings were rubbing off on his work yeah or just reacting against and expressing in a different way yeah yeah as a historical as you wouldn't like to be or as living in the past as you might to be we're all still being acted on by these larger forces in history that is like it's shaping how we think or how we phrase things or whatever you want to say right and and moving to a villa in Italy and and you know refusing to come to the United States or or coming very rarely for 30 years is is itself obviously a, a real gesture yeah yeah <laughs> uh, there's no way to to truly isolate yourself or in the act of doing so you're 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 certainly it's it's an act of refusal in some way all right well we can end it there but thank you so much thank you you've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast Produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. <laughs>